welcome to episode two of Think Aloud, the podcast where you'll hear from the people shaping art and culture today. I'm Harriet Fitch-Little, an arts journalist and frequent South Bank Centre visitor. South Bank Centre has just pulled off a literary heist of sorts, a festival celebrating 50 years of the Man Booker Prize, which managed to bring together 17 former winners of the prize across events over the course of a weekend, and many, many authors, all of whom had the good grace to not act too sore about the fact that they hadn't won. In this episode, I'll be speaking to the Southbank Centre's literature programmer, Debo Ammon, about his festival highlights. We'll also be hearing from Ted Hodgkinson, head of spoken word and literature at the Southbank Centre, about what goes into judging a book award, something he has had the pleasure and the pain of doing multiple times. And later on, we'll be hearing from Catelyn Moran, who was at Southbank Centre recently, talking about her new book, How to Be Famous, and more generally, flying the flag for a type of accessible writing that very rarely get seen on the Booker Prize shortlist. Now, last time I was here, me and my producer, Chica, kept on having to hop from room to room around the South Bank Centre to try and escape the not-so-dulcet tones of Nine Inch Nails, who were sound-checking at the time. That episode was backstage at Meltdown Festival, very backstage, evidently, and you can hear all about it on the uh, first podcast of Think Aloud, which is available on our podcast feed. Today, as you may be able to hear, we have gone outside in solidarity with the British summer. We are sitting on a bench outside the Queen Elizabeth Hall. We're on the banks of the Thames, which in the middle of England's heatwave is very welcome because it's possibly one of the few places in London at the moment that looks kind of inviting and almost verdant compared with the crumbling brown grass everywhere else. We've also got military helicopters flying overhead occasionally, um, so any more threatening noises you can uh, put down to the fact that we're recording in central London on a weekday. So I'm here now with Devo Ammon. I feel like I only ever really meet the staff of the South Bank Centre when they're at their most exhausted. I mean, on the last episode, I had Bengi and Rodri right at the point in which they're at the middle of organising Meltdown Festival. Devo, you've had a bit of breathing space now since the Man Booker 50 Festival ended, but it must have been an incredibly busy time. You were darting between 50, 60 authors. Yeah, it was an amazing time packed full of just amazing, high-quality authors talking about their work work. All right, so despite the short time period, we're like returning to a distant memory for you, given your <laughs> busy yeah. scheduling. I mean, thinking back, what stuck out for you across the events? What were the things that you most enjoyed? Because a lot of what you were doing was actually just watching the talks, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, for our team, as well as in terms of the programming side of things, it's also important just to make sure that you see the events and you understand how they're going and how audiences are receiving them. And what was the best um, reception? I think everything landed quite differently depending on the audiences that went to the individual events. There was this great um, quote that came out of the festival from Alan Hollinghurst, I don't know if it was at his event, when he said that he was very ha- glad that he wasn't there to do any withering. Did you hear this? By which he meant kind of this this wither the novel, which seems to be this question that gets asked repeatedly around events like this. And one of the places where that question, the withering, was happening was uh, Howard Jacobson's keynote speech that opened the weekend. You went to that, didn't you? Yes, yes. Howard Jacobson's keynote was... Um to be honest, I think it was it was pretty amazing in that he is incredibly funny. But also, it was during a festival like this, in the times that we are now, knowing that it was going to be broadcast on the BBC, taking 
drawing a line in the sand and just taking a stance on um, and really responding to the provocation of um, uh, the future of the novel, I think was impressive whether or not you agree or disagree with the things that he said, which was, he largely basically said that the, the novel itself was in great health. It was just that our current times in society has left possibly readers the poorer, so less able to engage with great novels and literature. That was a strong stance to say, and he didn't remove himself from that. He, he included himself in that, in that he felt that he spent too much time watching TV on, and on his phone, and that meant that uh, he, he had less time and patience to read. And clearly, like you said, it's a very strong line in the sand. Is it one that you agree with because I suppose I'm, I'm slightly sceptical of Howard Jacobson's stance and all of this and I think you know Will Self is the other person who's kind of made these bombastic statements about the fact we've got no time to read anymore and like the form is doomed and I was reading an interview with Howard Jacobson the other day when he was talking about his win for the Man Booker Prize with the Finkler question and he was saying that up until that point humorous novels hadn't been taken seriously and this was a great travesty and you know his novel was a real breakthrough for humorous novels being taken seriously and I just wonder now whether a lot of the reservations he has about where we are in consuming culture come from the fact that things have moved on again and we're interested in different things again and he he feels slightly left behind. <laughs> I would say, listening to his talk, I thought he raised interesting points. I don't agree, but I think I understand how one might th think that. For me, I think it's actually that there's been a transformation in the way that we consume art, and that can sometimes feel like we're no longer doing it or we no longer have time or we're too distracted. But I just think that now we've got to a point where we dedicate time to things rather than it being a habitual practice. So with everything that we have and with the competing things on our time, even just the arts, you know, we're apparently back in a, you know, golden age of TV, mm. there are brilliant movies coming out and we have more access to them than ever with streaming services. So I think now we compartmentalise our time more. Mm. Um, so it just means that, yes, we may not read two hours every night in the evening. However, you might spend a weekend going through, you know, a great novel or a great work of literature or take it on holiday with you. And also some of the tools that he criticises, he talks about social media a bit, you know, monster under the bed. But I mean, book Twitter is incredibly strong, isn't it? The yeah. um, amount of stuff that comes out of Twitter, people sharing novels. I mean, things, books go viral on Twitter in the yeah. same way as music does. Yeah, and I think that's been a new and added element in terms of book Twitter rather like you have the reviews element of it but you also have the live tweeting of novels which he might not actually be a, a fan of and I don't I don't really have a stance in it but I just find it interesting that books are becoming more of a communal activity now that uh, the way our social media has changed the landscape means that it's no longer such a solitary affair it doesn't mean that it can't be that but it means if you want to engage with a novel in a more communal manner you can and that adds a different dimension to it which I think is wonderful and everyone should read in the way they want to read really um, I don't think there's there's any right way of doing it I um, should apologize now for the sounds in the background because on Chica's insistence we sat outside for the ambience but um, the ambience currently involves a forklift truck going <laughs> up and down along the area we're sitting in so not quite like the summer idyll that we imagined on the banks of the Thames so Diva, in the simplest terms possible, what was the Golden Man Booker Prize? How did it work? 
It was a public vote based on a short list of books that were decided by five judges who each chose, who were each given a decade of Man Booker winners and they chose one winner from that decade to represent that decade of work. So there were five books on the short list and then the public got to choose who was the final winner. Yeah, and just to run through those books quickly, so it was V.S. Naipaul's In a Free State, then we had Michael and Dachi's The English Patient, which went on to win, no spoilers there, it happened a while ago, um, Penelope Lively's Moon Tiger, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, and then most recent book was Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo. <laughs> Debo, you were there, I mean, presumably you were kind of working, but were you also playing a spot the literary celebrity like I was? Um, <laughs> Yes, to an extent. You, you kind of think that it would all become blasé, but yeah. it never really does. I was still on a high from earlier in the day just because uh, Ishiguru was at the Royal Festival Hall speaking to Ondachi in conversation. And um, it's beyond them just being famous. It's that the who's who of literature, for me anyway, are people that have written work that has resonated with me since I was a kid. And yeah, so it was amazing. Yeah, like I said, it was amazing seeing from Ishiguru to uh, Penelope Lively, I thought was incredibly uh, amazing to have her there. And there were lots of people, I mean, it was an incredible event to organise just in terms of the amount of speakers who were getting up and down off the stage every couple of minutes because as well as kind of interviewing the people nominated who were there and then all the judges spoke, they also had these amazing readings from all the books, which is one of my favourite things because it's so rare that you sit down in a space that's entirely uninterrupted and you just listen to, they were quite, it was probably the longest part of the entire event, these readings, they were maybe five minutes each. And I particularly loved, I think you did too, the Lincoln and the Bardo reading when they put they put up on stage Chiwetel Ejiofor, then there was Fiona Shaw, Geoffrey Streetfield, and they the three of them played the ghosts in the graveyard that appear in Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah. And I suddenly understood it. <laughs> <laughs> it was really lovely, uh, yeah, hearing them read that. It was actually, to be honest, it was just incredible. Hearing, you know, three actors who are amazing bring it to life, each taking a different voice on themselves. Yeah. It just made the story rise uh, to a new level. And yeah, they played it perfectly. You got the humour of it a lot more, the interplay between the ghosts. Yeah, that was my favourite reading of the evening. One of the things that I noticed at the ceremony was that pretty much everyone who spoke, and almost regardless of what they were speaking about, they kind of highlighted the randomness of the award ceremony. So when Robert McCrum chose In a Free State from the 1970s, he, he said on the stage, I think I'm correct in saying that, you know, he didn't think it was Naipaul's best book, but he thought that Naipaul was the you know, most talented author writing in English and so that's why he had chosen it and then when Michael Ondaatje got up to give his speech when he won he said that you know he didn't think that his book was the best on this list or any list that could have been compiled of Man Booker Prize winners and obviously there's some kind of false modesty in there but clearly what they're highlighting is just like the slight randomness of it all. I mean how do you understand the point of a prize like the Man Booker? Is it to find the best book? So I think really I think what a book prize like the Man Booker is for it's for readers um, so it's about highlighting great books and yes you know it, the, the conceit is that you know you're gonna one has to win and you pick a winner but really there are so many books published every year but highlighting five ten books that people can find and read and enter into these new worlds and then often find other books that relate to those or you know that have by those same authors or other authors who write in a similar vein 
is what I think the, these book prizes do, and that's what they're best at. They're best at showing us a slice of literature that is amazing. Mm. I think that's what it's great at. It's great at highlighting books for readers. Yeah. One of the things they made a bit of a deal of at the awards ceremony was the fact that all these books from the past 50 years are still in print, which seems to kind of, is a testament that they've mm. stood some test of time. And I mean, this is a question that you could write entire PhD theses or possibly like books in themselves on, but from thinking about this event, how do you understand what that test of time is? It seems to me like a book needs to both speak very specifically to the time in which it was written and communicate something universal and lasting is that the secret to a great book uh, if if i had the secret to a great Alex book a uh, i would uh, i'd probably be a writer but um yes no i think for me and it, I, I think answers like this are always going to be personal is that even if you're not writing necessarily about the time that you're living in your writing is obviously influenced by it so it's always of its time and i think the timelessness and universality actually comes from specificity which i think all the books in the shortlist had that they were very they were very particular and they didn't try and be the attempt of being timeless will make for me a work not stand the test of time it's by being incredibly specific and understanding the characters and the time in which it's being set and just the conceits of the novel because at the end of the day fiction often comes down to the human condition and the characters within it and those things you know the emotions that we go through are what actually stands the test of time so by being incredibly specific and writing great characters I think that's that's the true way in terms of making your your work timeless as such. One of the judges, the judge for the most recent set of books, was the poet Holly McNeish. She chose Lincoln in the Bardo and it was quite striking when she got up on stage and did her interview she made a point of saying she hadn't read any of the books on the shortlist prior to being asked to judge them and I really felt like you could feel the room kind of divided slightly when she when she said that what do you think was the value of having Holly McNeish as a judge? I think there was great value in having her first of all Holly is an amazing poet and she really does understand the power of words also having someone who isn't as well versed in uh, fiction per se as in she doesn't read it as much as many of the other judges it dispels this notion that to enjoy literature you must have been reading since you were yay high it's actually really to have an opinion on literature just need to have read the just read the books and that's it and that's all we that's all they were asking and that's that's where you get this interplay of actually this is for everyone that there is no prerequisite requirement to have a valid opinion on what you like when it comes to literature and now i got you here i mean i've got to put you on the stage in terms of you had all the 50 books or the ones of them that you've read what would be your winner yeah, this is difficult. <laughs> um, there's so many, and uh, I will confess, I haven't read all 50 winners. When we knew we were doing the Mad Book of 50, I think like, we went around the team and sort of had a, uh, a spaghetti western star stare down on uh, have any of us actually read all 50, <laughs> um, all of the Man Book of Winners, there aren't actually 50. And I don't think any of us had. Uh, for me, I guess, it's really hard. Books are very connected to a particular time in which I read them for me so you do have from Life of Pi to The Famished Road but I also loved the you know the recent winners from Lincoln and the Bardo to uh, The Sellout and A Brief History of Seven Killings on the spot 
I would say... I'd say it'd either have to be A Brief History of Seven Killings or The Famished Road. Very different reasons. The Famished Road is my favourite Ben Okri novel and I'm also Nigerian and it has it has a particular resonance of novels of, of that ilk and I, I'm, I, I quite enjoy it. It's very reminiscent of a time in my life and discovering literature and discovering literature from people who were from the same place as me and, you know, that you can relate to as such. I think that was very eloquent. I hope that you one day get to put your expertise on a judging panel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> so now we're going to hear from someone who has judged a book prize, a couple of them. It's Ted Hodgkinson, who is the head of literature and spoken word here at the Southbank Centre and the presenter of our other podcast, Southbank Centre's Book podcast which you should subscribe to if you like think aloud and i say that despite my fierce sense of internal rivalry ted's judged several book competitions everything from the costa book award for poetry to the encore rsl prize for the best second novel to the british book awards in the debut category never realized there were quite so many book awards until i read that list (laughs) And what we wanted to ask him is basically when a group of often quite different people, because they try and get a lot of variety of interests onto a judging panel, are presented with a huge number of books in different genres, by different authors, in different styles, how do you choose the one that is best and what do you do on those days when you just don't agree? So I decided to get Ted to spill his secret and asked him this episode's burning question, which is how do you judge a book prize? So the process for judging a book award varies very much from prize to prize, from award to award. I suppose the key things that it shares is that a box of books will be sent to each of the judges. Sometimes those books will have been pre-sifted and whittled down to a long list by some early readers. Or sometimes the, the judges will be sent the entirety of all the submissions that they've received. The volume varies dramatically, so in the case of the Man Booker Prize, it could be up to 150 books, or it could be a more select group, depending on what the criteria is. So if it's, say, a poetry prize or a prize for the short story, it really does vary depending on what the prize is judging. The process is always slightly different. So, for instance, when I was judging the BBC National Short Story Award, I was reading um, a collection of blind submissions. So everyone who submitted to the BBC Short Story Prize had their name taken off their submission so we were reading them it was a little bit like being sent a bunch of tins without any labels on it so we had to work out what was inside them and and what we thought of the contents it can range then to prizes where you are being sent published work so when I judged the Costa prize for best poetry collection in that year we were sent I think around 50 poetry collections and it's really your job to as a judge to to spend some proper time acquainting yourself with what the aims of the books are, what the terms the book are trying to establish are, and um, how well you think those authors have fulfilled them, how well you think those poets have fulfilled them. I think what you're often trying to do is to, not simply just to judge it on your taste, 
but also to establish how well an author has fulfilled the promise of their world that they are they're trying to create so it's not it's not simply just saying these are the five books that I liked the most but it's also about trying to engage with the books on their own terms and try to see what they're trying to do and attempt because actually often what what the case is that authors will be trying to do something which might you might find unsettling or discombobulating at first and that if you persevere with it you might see that um that your brain is in the process of being rewired by that author and so it's it's actually something which pulls you out of your comfort zone can can often be something which really deserves greater attention you're trying to judge them on their terms and what they're trying to do you're looking for excellence so you're looking for a book which is really firing on all cylinders in terms of style uh, sentence to sentence sensibility is the author in command of their prose character you know is an author creating fully realized characters who are capable of surprising you and are they leaping off the page in ways that are endlessly surprising do they occasionally feel a bit flat a bit two-dimensional in which case deserves to be on the shortlist you know that there are so many times where you are trying to look at the different dimensions of a book and say well how how fully has something achieved what it's set out to do so it's about had they fully achieved what they set out to do it then also becomes a conversation with the judges because you will have your own shortlist in your mind of which of the books that you think really deserve to be on a shortlist and in a lot of cases your fellow judges probably agree uh, on the whole my experience has been that despite the apocryphal stories of melodrama and there's a very famous story when Philip Larkin was judging the Man Booker Prize that he was threatening to throw himself out of a window unfortunately that's never happened to me I've never I've never been in a situation where someone has threatened anything like that very exciting as it would be there are moments where you diverge and differ and my experience has been that those are moments in which you really need to listen, be very attentive to what a judge is saying. They might have a slightly different approach, angle, perhaps some experience that lights up a book for them in a different way to the way that you've read it. I think in the end it is about being able to fully articulate why a particular book is lighting up your circuit board, why you think it's relevant, why you think it's the best possible example of the novel that this person set out to write. You know, I do think it's about trying to engage with it on the author's terms and trying to see what they were trying to achieve and have they achieved that. That's often where the crux of it lies. I also think that, for me, I'm more inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to authors who I believe are trying something ambitious, who are trying something daring and bold. Um, If I think that someone has effectively kind of stayed in their lane and achieved something that they've already achieved, in a sense, or, or that they have beautifully executed a type of novel, that can be an immensely satisfying thing to read. But at the same time, I often look for books which challenge me, which push me out of my comfort zone, which unsettle me slightly. If there's a book which I'm finding hard to place or I'm not always sure how to categorise it, then I often I'm, I'm more drawn to giving books like that the benefit of the doubt. One of the great kind of reliefs of judging a book prize is when you discover something that you absolutely, with your whole being, absolutely love. And you know that you'll be able to go into any judging meeting and defend it till the cows come home because you know that it will, it's a hill you're prepared to die on, um, to mix my metaphors. The first year I judged the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Prize for the best second novel, myself and my fellow judges all had an experience like that about the winner of that year, which was Sanjeev Sahota's The Year of the Runaways. 
it's a book that takes you out of your life and into lives quite distant from your own. You may think that they are distant from your own, but it does it in such a humane, funny, tender way. It's magnificently written, beautifully written, um, and it floored me. And I was so pleased when I got an email from my fellow judges. The email equivalent of a jaw drop moment, you know, this is just staggering. It was really quite a unanimous decision in the end and that we all felt very firmly that that was the great find of that year. It's really your job as a judge to articulate that love and to be able to, to do it justice because essentially you're kind of, once you have had that sort of an experience with a book, a transformative experience, you're really the kind of custodian of that to your fellow judges and, and to the wider public who follow the prize as well. I think it's also, you do have to take into account that one of the key things that prizes can do for an author is to give them more freedom, more time to write, more resource as well. And that prizes have become such an essential part of the ecosystem in the publishing and the literary world. And that for a lot of authors, the vote of confidence from a panel of judges often gives them the confidence to keep going. I think also the other thing that certain prizes definitely also do is they have a profound effect on book sales, books which might not be on bestseller lists, but because of the prize, they are catapulted into a position where suddenly they are on the um, two-for-one table in Waterstones everywhere up and down the country, and uh, everyone's reading them and saying, you've got to read this. So I, I do think that, that prizes can be a useful litmus test of what is worth looking at. Very often, their recommendations worth taking. I like how positive and enthusiastic uh, Ted manages to sound about the experience of judging book prizes, which is one of those tasks that I really feel like could just suck your love of literature away entirely. I recently interviewed an author who was involved in judging the 2016 Man Booker Prize and I made the mistake of bringing him a book as a kind of like softener present before I interviewed him and you could just see his face drop. I think for him judging the book prize meant he was reading so much it was equivalent to kind of marathon training. And one of the things that Ted spoke about there was the need for a book to be hugely kind of challenging and ambitious in terms of form. The idea that you know, you, you're really uh, you're looking to recognize greatness in the writing rather than an accessible page turner necessarily. Um, the next person we're going to hear from has a very different account of what makes a book great. Catlin Moran was at the Southbank Centre recently talking to Gemma Kearney about her new book, How to Be Famous. And Diva, this was an event that you programmed. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and it was great to have uh, Catlin Moran here at the Southbank Centre again. It'd been a few years since we'd had her. Yeah, there is a connection that she finds to audiences through her books, which is just lovely to see on that night. You could feel it in the room. And what was the motivation for wanting to have her here other than, I mean, I'd imagine she gets bums on seats, like you're saying, she's incredibly popular, prominent figure. Mm. With Catelyn's work, she finds a way to really say something with her books, they are ostensibly really trying, she's trying to write for the teenager she was, she's trying to, trying to write the book that she wished she had when she was a teenager and I think there's something really powerful in that. Her audiences go both from people who were the age in which she was trying to write for, um, but way beyond that and being able to use words that connects with people like that and gets a message across or your point of view across is actually far more difficult than I think people imagine. So How to Be Famous is a fiction book. Uh, her previous book, uh, How Not to Be a Woman, as uh, non-fiction has become kind of sort of a teen bible for an accessible form of feminism. Uh, we're going to play part of that interview with Gemma Kearney now. I'd always knew that I 
wanted to be a writer when I was younger, and you know, I could do some of the writings, but I didn't know what I was allowed to do. It seemed that like, you know, I wanted to write films and TV shows and books and stuff, but everything that existed, I was like, well, how can I write something like that? Like kind of a film, it's like Star Wars and it's about a teenage boy who gets magical powers and then blows up a Death Star. I can't write something like that. And then I just had this big pivot at the end of my 30s where I went, okay, you don't write the stuff that exists. You go over here and start doing a list of all the things that don't exist yet. That's your job. And now I've just got lists and lists of things that I haven't seen, things that I want to see people say, topics that never get addressed. And the stuff that I like the best is secret stuff. I like dirty stuff. I like shameful stuff. Like kind of, there's anything that anybody else is trying to cover up or kind of go, oh, no, no, that doesn't exist. I'm running towards it, shining a torch and it going, that's my stuff. <laughs> this is where I'll be. See you in the shame corner. <laughs> the whole idea of like kind of, you know, sharing these things and like talking about, you know, your, you know, your intimate moments, your embarrassing moments is that you don't just do it to kind of, you know, wank on to use a technical and scientific term. Um, <laughs> you put these things out there to start a conversation and go kind of like, this happened to me, has it happened to someone else? Um, for instance, uh, you know, one of the things we were talking about was the phenomenon of if you get into a, if you're a lady, and particularly after you've had children, if you get into a hot bath, uh, you will be in the bath, you will wash yourself in the bath, then you'll get out of the bath, and then about a minute and a half later, some water just comes out. Yeah. <laughs> that just happens. <laughs> Like a magic trick. Yeah, literally. It's like, wow. <laughs> like your fanny's just gone, I'll keep enough to wash my hands with later in case <laughs> in case the water gets cut off. But it's still um, surprising as well, yeah. even though it kind of always happens. Oh <laughs> it happened to me once live on BBC Breakfast. I was <laughs> sitting there with the trouser suit, they were doing the countdown. Three, two, <laughs> thankfully I had a pashmina and I could cover it up. That's basically what pashmina is for. But um so so things like that. And the first time I had said that on stage, I had no idea. I really hoped other people had experienced it. Um, <laughs> it's always that tiny little quiet thing. But this is the thing about this is why I love writing about being a woman and sort of women's issues, because most of what we do still has not been written about. Like, for instance, in the book, I, I've written very explicitly about sex. There's, no, there's nothing mysterious about the sex in this book, because I always hated it in books when people were mysterious. When it would say things like, their bodies joined together in ecstasy, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. That's of no use to me. That's, I don't, I need, I, I want a manual. I want you to give me specific instructions. Where's the finger? What's happening to the bum? <laughs> What are they saying? <laughs> kind of, where's the spunk gone? Can anyone hear them? Facts, facts, facts. So, so, you, so we can't learn about sex and pornography. And then the other most famous sex that's around at the moment is Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. And that's, you know, that's, that's such a faff, that sex. Yeah. You, you've got to find a billionaire. And then, <laughs> and then you've got to go in a helicopter. <laughs> and then he has to go to Halfords and buy some cable ties. <laughs> By that point, the mood would have gone. Like, you know, I'm kind of like, let's do this now. It doesn't need to be so much infrastructure. So, <laughs> yes, well, it's like, it's like we're starting sets again from scratch, and like, and I think it's really important when we're starting to have these conversations for the first time that we're very that we're very certain about the category. We must not make category errors. So, for instance, when the Me Too thing kicked off, mm. the, the the stuff that was happening around Me Too that was about sexual crimes. That is, that is about crime. Yeah. That is about absolutely non-consensual crimes. That is good. 
Then there was a second that we are talking about. It wasn't good that those things happened, obviously. So yeah. made that sentence very clear. Those were bad things that happened, but it was good that we were talking about them. Yeah. And then there was a second wave of stuff, like particularly with the Aziz Ansari case. Mm -hmm. where I don't know if anybody read that story mm. that someone, the, the comedian Aziz Ansari, a woman went back to his flat and kind of like, you know, some bad stuff happened, but no crimes were committed. It was just a kind of eggy situation, very horrible. And that provoked a huge debate because it was being talked about under the Me Too banner. Mm. But that seemed to be a very separate thing. That That is about bad sex. That, that's an awful shag. That's yeah. a bad night out. No crimes were committed. That was awful. And I think it's very important that we separate the two. So what I suggest is that over here we've got Me Too. Those are yeah. crimes. And then what we need in order to talk about kind of like relationships between men and women and bad nights out and bad shags and all this kind of stuff is to have something like TripAdvisor called... <laughs> <laughs> called Dick Advisor, where, <laughs> where we would just be able to talk about individual shags, and maybe we would name the people, maybe we wouldn't name the people, but we get yeah. to have a conversation about the mechanics of these things and what we do and don't like. Because going back to what we were talking about before, how can men know what to do in those situations? They're not going to learn it from pornography. The yeah. only other way they're going to know is if men and women are talking to each other about sex. Where are we doing that? Nowhere. Nowhere. And it makes it so scary, and I think it very much feeds into a, a time that I often describe of like do mongering and fear, which we have to admit before we can break that down. And, yes. I, and you know, this idea of like time's up, you know, obviously it's important and time is up on sexual crime. Yes. And hopefully uh, in the sexist world, the patriarchy, yes. you know, it's deep, it's deep, it cuts deep. But, you know, in terms of like actually living in day to day, like mostly waking up and thinking, oh, it's a sunny day, I feel quite good about that. Or I'm quite a romantic, I would quite like to smooch someone. Yes. Or I, I'm interested in discussing, my, you know, the weird, wonderful sex that I've had. It, it's really, it's a hard time to talk about sex. Totally. And what, what I really noticed at the moment, I've noticed over the, the, the last couple of years, like, kind of like, you know, the feminist movement still goes from strength to strength now. We're having new conversations, we've got new role models all the time. You know, women are win, winning pop at the moment. You know, we, we win at pop music. We have the best pop stars, uh, all female at the moment. There's amazing TV shows that are coming along. You know, we're seeing sort of like, sort of boundaries broken every day. The idea of what a woman can be over the last 120 years has changed so hugely and so excitingly. I would not want to be anything other than a woman. And what I increasingly think is, why is the same not happening for men? Yeah. Like, the kind of, why are men not having... I don't understand why men are not seeing how women have changed so much and gone, well, God, how can we change? Mm -hmm. This is great. Let's have a look at the load of gender bullshit that we're having to deal with. And why don't we turn into different things? Why don't we have a conversation? Something like feminism for men. Absolutely. Because that isn't happening. What's happening? Because we're not... Because good, brilliant, creative, liberal, progressive men are not stepping forward and sort of deciding to do this job. What you're getting instead is kind of like right-wing men's activists, people like Jordan B. Peterson, mm. who are kind of standing up and going, I will lead the young men. Yeah. And sort of going backwards to a point where they're talking about enforced marriage and enforced, you know, inf you know, basically the state giving men wives because otherwise men will become angry and criminal. And it's like if the one, if there's one thing that culture needs to be doing now, it needs to be, you know, I think women are generally we're kind of taking care of ourselves now. We're getting some shit done, and it's like men, it's your turn now. Mm. Like kind of come on. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love it because I'm, I'm a bit bored and exasperated with like this idea that to be a progressive modern feminist to achieve, you know, it, it's like, oh my God, men are so shit. It's like, yes. I'm, I really like them. <laughs> no, no, no. 
<laughs> I really do. Think, it's always really important to make the difference between when you're talking about the patriarchy, that, that is like, you know, that is a whole yeah. structure. You're not just talking about a man called Patrick who is here tonight feeling bad about this stuff. <laughs> like, kind of like, when we talk about the man, it's the man, not yeah. a man who is here feeling really, um, you know, awkward yeah. about this conversation. Like, kind of, you know, with, you know to, to, to dismiss all men is as cruel as dismissing, you know, when men dismiss all women for being silly. Like, kind of like, you know, we, we must keep our humanity. We must always believe that people are good. And the whole idea about equality, and particularly feminism, is that you want everyone to believe in it. You can't keep all the feminism over yeah. here. You can't go, well, only women can be feminists. And of the women who are feminists, only the ones that know all the words and have read all the books yeah. and do everything completely correctly, yeah. of which there are nine people in the world, <laughs> only they can be really feminists. And all the feminism is going to be kept here in a special box. The whole point about feminism is you want to spread it as far as possible. That's, that's the only way that it's going to work. Mm. You know, the, the end point of feminism is that it doesn't need to exist anymore. The idea that there would have to have been a pressure group that kept having to say men and women are equal, the idea is that in the future we don't need that anymore because everyone is equal. Absolutely. And our great-great-grandchildren look back and go, what? So 52% of the world's population didn't get to help solve things. 52% mm -hmm. of the world's brains were sidelined and no one listened to them. Like, kind of like, things must have been really bad back then. Yeah. <laughs> you must have had really bad political problems and environmental problems. Mm. It must have been quite depressing. And we'll go, yes, yes, it was, it was. It was very depressing. We were very, very tense. I remember 2018 being particularly tense. Yeah. Everything seemed to be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hence an epidemic in mental health issues. Exactly, yes. Um, um, and again, using communication as your tool, and you are somebody who is a great inspiration for that. Like the way you describe things, it's just—it's funny, it's connectable. It's not—you—you you, you don't write in a way that's like for the clever peeps. Well, very—I mean, there are, I think there are two positions you can be in if you're writing. You can either be like up on a—I mean, it's ironic that I'm on a stage now. It's going to really fuck up my metaphor, but like you can—you <laughs> can be on a stage looking down and going, "Look at my words, and my my amazingness." That's what happens when you're good. It just happens. Yeah. Everyone like. But know. I always. Try not to be. I always try to be sort of like down and kind of like, you know, I'm sitting with you. Let's look at this thing together. Like, I like describing things, you know, I like kind of like sitting next to someone and, you know, whenever I'm writing something, I'm imagining just putting my arm around someone and going, oh God, okay, we're going to laugh at this now. Kind of like, mm. look at this rather than standing there going kind of like, look at my, look at my Rococo flourishes. Look at my, you know, <laughs> my fabulous verbal architecture. Like, kind of, you know. Uh, but you know, you know, writing should you know you should writing should be fun and joyous. It should feel like a sharing thing. I know the writers that inspired me were ones that I read them and thought I could do that. You know, reading Adrian Mole or Spike Milligan's War Memoirs or Douglas Adams, they were kind of they were brilliant quotidian writers. You would read what they wrote and just go, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I can see how I could write a book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they weren't sort of like you know, whereas if, you know, reading Martin Amis, like kind of you know, I, I can admire what he does, but I, I very much got the feeling that he was saying was I don't want you guys to be writers. Mm -hmm. Like kind of like. <laughs> This is Martin Amos's room, you are not allowed in. Mm. Writing is for the Amoses. You are not an Amos, you will not be allowed to write. <laughs> Everybody who can write is called Amos, and everyone who can't write is not called Amos. Good day to you. Yes. So that was Catelyn Moran talking to Gemma Kenny at the South Bank Centre earlier this month. Uh, Diva, I'm not going to get you to comment on whether you think that um, Dick Advisor is a good idea for a startup or not, but um, what do you think more generally about this idea of authors running towards shameful things, which she seems to pinpoint as one of um, the things she's primarily interested in, also perhaps part of the reason for her success? I, I don't really put any parameters on what someone should write about or how someone should write. However, I do think that there is a tradition of doing that and there is merit in it as well. I think often when we read, especially that read and more so than many other forms of arts, is quite solitary. That it's a space in which we can engage with our most private 
and almost transgressive thoughts. Running towards your shame as an author often can be a way to connect with the reader um, because you're confessing something that people won't say out loud. There's, there is a both a, a strength in that as a writer to do that, especially if you're writing from a point of view where it can be seen as not just fictional but also autobiographical. I also think there's a particular strength when women do that because even when they are writing fiction, there is a tendency to view fiction written by women as autobiographical rather than purely fiction. So there's always going to be the questions raised of, did you do this? Is this from your own experience? Even if it's not. Um, and, you know, you have writers like Chris Krauss who've written in similar veins. Uh, you also have sort of auto-fiction. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I found most interesting about, you know, listening to that excerpt from the interview is that she said that she kind of realised at a certain point in her 30s that what she needed to be doing was writing the things that hadn't been written and which didn't exist rather than trying to, like, recreate things that had already been written. And that's one of those things that seems so utterly simple when you think it, but <laughs> most people can't do that, can they? Like think of something that doesn't exist I don't know she made it sound so obvious but <laughs> yes um, there is a lot of ground that is retrodden the act of creating something new is very hard um, but creativity I can't remember who said it but I'll steal the phrase um, is our only natural human resource I think and, Instagram yeah. probably said that <laughs> it probably is no <laughs> actually yeah it might be Instagram <laughs> but yeah it's the only thing that we truly create ourselves that doesn't just come off the world but it's also something that's really difficult outside of genre fiction like which is the whole conceit when you're making sci-fi or fantasy you are literally trying to build worlds but in, in in other regards when you're trying to find effectively in novels that are based in realism it is quite difficult to find a new angle on the human yeah. experience yeah exactly to know where that newness comes from I feel from that interview I don't know if you'll agree or not that she's not really a big fan of the sort of writing necessarily um, well, the sort of writing she does isn't the sort of writing that's going to win the man booker. She talks about kind of being with the people, not on the stage, even though she obviously was on the stage when she gave this talk, something <laughs> that she points out. And I think this is something that kind of pervades her entire outlook. She speaks about feminism not being about having read all the books. I mean, we've just had the long list for this year's Man Booker announced and How to Be Famous isn't on it. Should it be? Like, are you a populist when it comes to these things or do you see a virtue in these books which value language and ambition in a more traditional sense, more in the kind of sense that Ted was talking about it? Uh, for me, I'm, uh, I liken my taste to books similarly to my taste in movies. So I like your Oscar winning foreign fiction as much as I do Transformers. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's space for it all and that they're trying to do different things. Often, yes, books that are on the man, but number one, there are loads of different prizes um, and all prizes are trying to highlight different types of books for different readers. Um, and the man booker is often looking at books that are great works of literature in the sense of things that are pushing the format and form of the novel forward and are pushing through Rather language. Rather than subject matter potentially, which is exactly. kind of like what we were saying about yes. Catelyn Yeah, so the man booker is less about being a page turner yeah. and more about, you know, the actual art of writing and trying to push that forward. And I think that's great. I also think there's space for page turners. She did talk about how 
certain books made her feel like she could also write and there is definitely a power in that but I also think not everyone reads for that reason so I never read thinking that I want to read something that shows me you know that I can do it too I kind of read books that show me I can't and I like that I like understand it's like I, n I never really watch the 100 meter finals and the Olympics and think I could do it too and I don't want that I want to see what's the extent in which someone can push their particular form like what are the outer boundaries of creativity when it comes to literature and I kind of love that but I think she's included in that like how honest can one be how how much can you connect with your audience I think she does that in her own way and so that's why I think there's there's value in it all Devo, thank you so much. The time we've been sat here, the table has moved from shade into sun. So I think it's time that we let you get back to the office. Thanks to you too. So this has been an episode all about how certain things get chosen, how books get chosen for book prizes, how speakers get chosen to appear at the South Bank Centre. In a future episode of Think Aloud, we're going to be broadening out the topic. Uh, the Southbank Centre's got curators for pretty much every art form, so for National Ask a Curator Day in September, we're going to be putting some of your questions to them. If you have always wanted to know why the Royal Academy never accepted your painting for the summer show, or why your band that's practising in your garage can't get booked, or if you've got a more intellectual question about, for example, what goes into putting on one of the big exhibitions here at the Southbank Centre, then email us your questions, podcasts at southbankcentre.co.uk, and we'll put them to our experts ahead of the show. Thanks for listening to Think Aloud. We'll be back next time with more of the people shaping art and culture today. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. You can follow us on Twitter in the meantime at Southbank Centre and you can find me on Twitter at Harriet FL. <laughs>